I'll tell you what, we are very thankful for the warm, warm welcome. I don't just say that lightly. We have just been greeted so warmly uh, ever since walking in the door. In fact, we're walking across the parking lot. Uh, Brother Yusuf just started right away helping us, and it's just not stopped since, since the service started and even through. And, and uh, we are very grateful for your welcome. We, I was at a church one time in North Carolina. On a, we were on our first furlough, and we had some friends that were, they were kind of in between church, uh, finding a new home church, and they, they had been trying some places. And so we were just in town visiting. And on a Wednesday night, they didn't have a place they were going to go, and I really wanted to find a church to go to. And so uh, I think the, my wife and some of the kids were sick. And so I told the, the husband where we were staying, I said, I, I'm going to look in the phone book. This was before the Internet and before, you know, Google and all this stuff. And so I went to the old-fashioned yellow pages and started looking up, trying to find independent, fundamental King James Bible, you know, uh, Baptist church. And, and I found one that sounded pretty good in the yellow pages, and I called the pastor and talked to them for a few minutes, and uh, pretty quickly we connected and, and saw that we were on the same page doctrinally, and so I said, well, if you don't mind, I said, my friend and I, will just come out to your service, and it was kind of out in the country, but it was a really thriving Baptist church on a Wednesday night. I was surprised, but we got there, and we just kind of walked out of nowhere in our suits with our Bibles under our arms, total strangers to the church, and we got there, and we walked in, and uh, the greetings were kind of frosty. It was just kind of like, howdy. Hello. And shake hands, but just like, are you sure? <laughs> and uh, so it, it took off. And the pastor was busy before the service, and so he came, he came out onto the platform as the song service was starting. So we hadn't had a chance to meet. And so we get into the service, and the pastor says, I think we might have a visiting missionary here with us. Brother Smith, are you out there? And I raised my hand, and he said, well, come on up here. And he told him how we had a conversation by phone that day, and he said, he's back on a furlough from Japan, and tell us a little bit about your work. And so I took a few minutes, and greeted the church and said a couple things and everybody amen and I went and sat down and after the service ended I mean there was a beeline of men walking up to me and my friend and just apologizing left and right like brother I'm so sorry and I said no 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 I was so rude to you I was so rude to you. I'm so sorry I wasn't greeting you very nice we thought y'all was a pulpit committee coming to spy on our pastor and extend a call to him and we love our pastor we was going to run you off and I said I'm just a visiting missionary from Japan. <laughs> but I thought, well, I'm glad you love your pastor. And, uh, but that was an interesting evening. But uh, it wasn't like that when we came here tonight. But uh, we are very, very grateful to be here. I would like to just take a few minutes uh, and, and try to be sensitive to the time tonight and not keep it terribly long. But uh, thank you, thank you. I, it's good to go back and, and, go back and, and revisit how the Lord saved you how the Lord's called you. I grew up in a home where my parents knew were young Christians uh, living in Illinois, and I was born into a Christian home. But uh, so I, my first memories are going to church, and uh, and when I was in my uh, about eight to ten years of age, I didn't write it down in my Bible, but my dad had been moved over to Evansville, Indiana, with a transfer with uh, IBM, and uh, they found a church that was sort of like the church they had started out in, and yet they thought it was in name the same denomination, but when they got there, they weren't preaching the Bible, and my folks were not too far along in their faith, but they thought, this just isn't right. The church ought to be where you hear the Word of God preached. And, and uh, so they kind of dropped out, not sure where to go. And a deacon or someone from our, uh, a church down the street, Mill Road Baptist Church there in Evansville, Indiana, came knocking on the door one night and invited them to church, and that was their introduction to uh, an independent Baptist church. And uh, that's what I grew up in. And so I came to know the Lord at a young age. Uh, an evangelist by the name of Fred Brown uh, came to our church 
more than once, and uh, through the preaching of God's word on a, a middle of the week, uh, I put my faith in Christ, and that's when I got saved. My wife grew up in Minnesota, uh, daughter of a dairy farmer, and uh, raised in a God-fearing Lutheran home, and uh, sprinkled as a baby, went to church, was a good girl, and up, you know, moral and all that, but she had a, an uncle that had gotten saved, and uh, she went over to visit him and his, uh, her, her cousins, and uh, as was his habit, he, he read a Bible story to his children at night before they went to bed. And his 14-year-old niece was sitting there, and he turned to her and he said, Joanne, uh, you know now you realize you're a sinner and that Jesus died for Joanne's sins? And nobody had ever told her that before. Uh, she'd heard that Jesus had died on a cross, but not for Joanne's sins. And uh, shortly after that, she came to know the Lord as Savior. And, and uh, we've got some really good friends up in the, a couple hours north of here in Tacoa that uh, were very instrumental. The, the wife uh, was an unmarried uh, young lady at the time, and she was across the hall from my wife who came to junior college in Rochester. And she and another gal started witnessing to my wife. And Joanne said, well, I'm a Christian. I know the Lord. And, uh, and, but they started talking to her about baptism as a believer, and the Lord really used them in her life. And so we are looking forward very much tomorrow to getting to visit them. That couple, we've been in Japan for 33 years, and that couple has faithfully prayed and given from day one. And uh, they're about the only ones, I think, still that would be in that category. But, but uh, how did we go to Japan? In 1989... Uh, I was like maybe a lot of you men, I was a, a young dad, had two little children, and uh, we lived in an apartment, and I was working for a, a air products and chemicals, be like Praxair or Lindy, one of those filling industrial gas and medical gas cylinders in a plant. And uh, we were members of a little independent Baptist church in Prior Lake, Minnesota, trying to just be faithful in church and serve the Lord. We had prayed about missions, we had been to Bible college for a time, uh, but the Lord didn't continue that, uh, and we had just settled into raising a family and trying to save up money to buy a house, but uh, we believed that we, wanted, we needed to be faithful in church and serve the Lord. So we were doing a lot of things in church, um, and uh, we had a very unique opportunity. A missionary that had been in Japan for 40-some years uh, had uh, an arrangement where he brought 25 Japanese people from Japan over to the States. He had a daughter getting married, but he designed, they, they'd always wanted to visit America. And so he arranged it that for a couple of weeks, this group would come to America and travel around the country. And uh, he designed it that they would not just go see all the tourist sites, but they would be in real America with real American families staying in homes and yes, going to church. And he told them that ahead of time. And in this group, about five or six of them were Christians and the rest were unsaved people. But they all wanted to come and try this America thing out. Well, how I ended up in this situation was uh, my pastor called me a few days before this group. They were going to come to our church on a Sunday night, be there for a church service, have some testimonies and things, and then stay overnight with some families. And the next morning, that group was going to take off in a bus and travel in Minnesota and Wisconsin to some churches and different places for about a week. Three days before they came, my pastor called me and said, Randy, I've got a real problem. Uh, I've got a bus and we thought we had a driver lined up from another church to take this group for a week, but he can't go. Um, how would you like a ministry opportunity? <laughs> he said, you have a license to drive bus, don't you? And I said, yes. And he said, is there any chance that you could take a week off of work and drive bus for this Japanese group? And I honestly thought it was interesting. I thought, I, 
this is just an opportunity to help uh, and see the mission field come to America instead of go take a survey trip to the mission field. And I was just going to help out. So uh, I checked with my boss and got permission and took a week of vacation. And I took off with my son the next morning. And we, we on that Monday morning, went with that group for a week. And uh, God began, that was what God used to take our family to Japan. And as I travel, I'm driving the bus down the road. That missionary was, was just sharing with me his burden for the Japanese people. And uh, he had been there a long time, and, and he believed in the local church, and local church sent missionaries. And he said, uh, we've had a, a program that we've devised to help mentor young missionary families that come to the field that don't have any idea how to live in a country like Japan. And I sure didn't know how. And so, uh, but he never talked to me. He said, we're praying that on this furlough, God would give us, before our days in Japan come to an end, we're praying that God would give us a couple more families that would come to Japan, that surrendered to a call to come to Japan, and that we could help get on their feet, and uh, we're praying that God would do that. And he never pointed his finger at me and said, would you pray about Japan? He didn't do that. But he shared with me a thought, and he said, he was just talking about living by faith, and about putting it all in God's hands, your finances, your future, your health, your, your safety, everything, your family, everything. He said, Randy, we don't have that many people today in Christian America that are willing, really willing, to just put it all in God's hands and even be willing to hazard their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might recognize that last phrase as Acts 15, verse 26, talking about Paul and Barnabas, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, at that moment, should have recognized it as in the Bible, but I didn't. And I just thought it was a phrase that he came up with, and I missed it. But that phrase, out of everything else he said to me, kept ringing in my head. And I believe it's because it's the Word of God. And the Bible says that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And people say, I want to know the will of God. Well, you can't know the will of God apart from this book. And uh, we went, I went home at the end of that week really stirred. I talked with Japanese people. Uh, I couldn't speak any Japanese, but some of them could speak English through interpreters and things. And I would just try to talk to them about the Lord. And just time after time, they would look at me with a blank stare. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never seen a Bible. I don't know the first thing about Christianity. Never heard that Jesus came to save them from their sins. Not once. Men in their 40s, 50s, 60s. And uh, not once have I heard it. And the Lord just really gripped my heart. And I went home and I told my wife, and I said, I don't know if God's just saying I want you to be more burdened for missions and pray more for missionaries, or is God really trying to get my attention that I want you to go to Japan? But I didn't want to get that wrong. And uh, that was too big of a, a step. And, but we began to pray and ask the Lord, and I really believed that God would lead us through his word. So we, would, we were doing devotions one, one morning before I went to work, and we were in the book of Acts, and we came to Acts 15, and I read that verse, Acts 15, 26, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said to Joanne, that's, that's where he got that. That's here in the Bible. Wow, I'd missed that. Huh, I wonder if that's a coincidence. And we kept praying, and a few weeks later, as we continued to pray, we went down to Rochester, Minnesota, where we had been married, where my parents and some of my siblings were still going there to church. We had a lot of friends there. We just visited on a weekend, went into the Sunday school class, of the young adult class on a Sunday morning, and people greeted us, said, hey, Randy, Joanne, good to see you again. And we uh, were sitting there, and the teacher started to prepare to go into the Sunday school lesson. And he said, 
turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. And so we did. And he said, today's lesson is in chapter 16. But last week we, we were studying chapter 15. And there's a verse from last week's lesson that's just been on my mind a lot this week. And I really don't know why I'm going to do this, but I just feel led to read it again. And he opened it up to Acts 15, verse 26. Men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, I don't know why I did that. It has nothing to do with today's lesson. So let's go ahead to chapter 16. I just felt like I needed to do that. And I looked at my wife. Everybody else was like, okay, whatever. And I looked at Joanne and I thought, that was for us. That was just like opening up my Bible and saying, thou shalt take thy family and go to Japan. I mean, that was so clear. Only God could do that. The timing of it and all that. And God's word is living. And we have a God. If we have a desire to know God's will and we are surrendered to him, he's not going to hide it from us. And uh, in his time, he will show us. And we just knew, though we knew almost nothing else, we knew God is saying, I want you to go to Japan. Well, how? <laughs> Where do I even start? And so we corresponded a lot with that missionary, and he began to share with us a, a simple plan. He said, you can come to Japan. He said, he said, your home church can take care of everything you need. And my pastor knew him, and they had a track record, so this was not like totally off the wall to my pastor. He had seen, and he'd seen this proven. And uh, so this brother, he said, if you can come to Japan with your home church supporting you and a few other churches uh, get behind you in prayer, come to Japan and get your feet wet, learn the language, get a burden for these people, then go back to the States and really build on in a furlough, adding to your support, but just come. And uh, God will supply your needs. And I'm like, okay, uh, how much support do we need? Uh, and and, and I, all I know was going through mission agencies and raising a certain amount of support. And this was totally out of the box. And uh, he said, if you could come, now this is 33 years ago, and we were in northern Japan. He said, if you could come with about $800 to $1,000 a month of support, God will supply your needs. And that did not sound like way near enough. Uh, but I thought, well, why would he lie to me and tell me to come with not enough? We'd be knocking on his door, you know, asking for food. Uh, he must know what he's talking about. He lives there. He's been there 40 years. So we, we just by faith believed that this is how God was directing us. So that's how we began to pray. And so I was still working full time. And I, I told my boss that at some point, uh, I just want to tell you, because you put a lot of training into my job, uh, I'm going to be leaving and going to Japan. I don't know when yet. And they could have let me go, but the Lord was gracious, and they just kept me right up until we left. But uh, that was in the spring. I took that trip with that Japanese group in May of 1989. Now, only God could do this, but in September of the next year, we were on a plane flying to Japan. And we had four churches supporting us, and a few individuals that got behind us. But as we approached that next year, we had a third child that was born. So now we have three little children, and we're praying about going to Japan, but when do we go? You know, how and what? And so again, I asked the missionary, when would be a good time to come? And he said, well, summertime, it's expensive with uh, summer travel, and tickets are expensive. The snows start coming in the winter, like you saw. Uh, September would be a very good time to come. Mid-September would be probably the perfect time to come and settle in before winter comes. And uh, so we began to pray, all right. So we prayed and just prayed specifically. And Lord, we're being told and given counsel and our pastor is okay with all of this. And we were seeing some funds coming in. I would go out on a Wednesday night or on a weekend 
And uh, little by little, a few churches, most churches really just didn't want to give it the time of day because it sounded so unusual and unorthodox and just didn't sound right. But different men said, I, I see God leading in this. I see faith in this. I see a, a man that's proven. He's been there. God could do this. And so they began to get behind us little by little. And we had, uh, when we went to Japan, we had our home church and three other churches. Uh, when we came back on our first furlough, we lost all, all four of those churches' support over the King James Bible. And we had to start all over again. But God is faithful. And God has taken care of us. And not one time in 33 years have we ever been without. God has taken care of us. But we began to pray about going to Japan at that, that first term. And we thought, well, if we're going to go to Japan in the middle of September, we really have to know we're going by the 1st of August. Just all the things we have to do, our passports and visas and tickets and selling things and packing up some stuff to send and saying goodbye to family and all that logistical stuff. So we just began to pray, Lord, if, if you are indicating to us that you want us to go to Japan by the middle of September this year, would you please, we've been told, the counsel we've been given is that we need $800 minimum a month of support. So we're asking you that on August 1st, that if you want us to go this year at this time, that we have that amount. And we just prayed that way. And uh, we were getting closer and closer to August 1st, and we were not there at $800. And on August 1st in the morning, I had to go to work. We had, as far as we knew, $753 raised. And uh, we were asking for $800. And this is August 1st. Uh, well, it's August 1st until midnight. <laughs> I don't know what else to do but to go to work and keep praying. So I went to work, and about 10.30 that morning, I got a phone call from my wife, and she was in tears. And when I found out, no, none of the children got hurt, she said, I just got a phone call from our church treasurer, and he wanted to let me know that he had missed, and this family up in Tokoa was the ones that he had missed recording. And he said, they've been giving $50 a month for several months, and I forgot to record it. You have $803 in your account. It was there already. But we learned about it on August 1st. Our God is never late. He's seldom early. He is always on time. And God just, again, just gave us a confirmation, go. And so we did, and uh, God has been faithful. But that's, the, that's kind of the, the long, short story of uh, how God took us to Japan. And for the last 30, this, this month on the 18th, next week, it'll be the 33rd anniversary of God taking us. But I, I still, I stand back. We, I went on that trip in May of 89, and in September of the next year, we were flying to Japan. And God just has taken care of us. And we've, we've had to learn a hard language. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've seen God save people. We've seen people uh, die and go to heaven. We've seen people walk away and leave. Same things you experience here. But we've seen God doing a work, and God is still doing a work, and there have been some children while we've been gone that have put their faith in Christ this summer. We have a lot of families that we're working with that are standing right outside the door, just right there, and they just won't take that step of repentance. That's really the missing part of the equation. They want to believe in a Savior that will save them and give them eternal life, but they don't want to repent. They don't want to turn from sin. They want Jesus to be a buddy to walk along with me on the path that I've picked out. But repentance is a change of mind towards God and towards yourself and as a sinner, and it's a turning and going on his road. And 
So there are a lot of people that we're still praying for, and we appreciate your prayer and some of those faces, if they come back to mind. Those are all people that we're going to go back and continue to work with by God's grace and see them come to Christ. But in the time we have left for a few minutes, would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Kings? And as I've, we've come back on this furlough, we came back in April. As I said, we're going back at the end of next month, and we visit churches and the Lord has given me different thoughts and messages and things to, to bring and share. But a thought has come to my mind again and again and again. And in the Bible we see over and over again men and women, boys and girls, doing what little they could, which was almost nothing sometimes, and yet what God did with that. We can take so many times when maybe your pastor or someone... Uh, comes to you and there is a need in the church. There's a need to step up. We were in a church in Texas recently and uh, the pastor needed a song leader. And uh, a man that had been a song leader had left or moved on and uh, the pastor really felt like I, can't, I could try to do this but I, really, I need a song leader. And he just put it out there to the men and three different men volunteered and none of them can really hold a tune in a bucket too well but they, they just said, I'll do what I can and praise the Lord to do what you can. But you know, so many times the answer is, I can't do that. I can't. It's never about what you can or cannot do. We're not going to go there, but you know the story of Moses and the burning bush, right? 80-year-old Moses, and God calls him and says, go back to Egypt. I'm going to send you to be the means of delivering my people. And he starts telling God all the reasons why I can't. All the reasons. And God just patiently deals with him and finally says, what's in your hand, Moses? And he said, a rod. He says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground, becomes a serpent. And then he tells him, pick it up by the tail. No way. <laughs> you don't pick up a snake by the tail. But he picks it up and it becomes a rod again. But you know what? It wasn't Moses' stick. It wasn't the box called the Ark of the Covenant. The Jews thought, if we have this good luck charm, if we just take that with us into battle, we'll win. And God says, no, the problem is I'm not with you. It's not the box. It's not the stick. Later on, God said, Aaron, throw your rod down. It wasn't Moses' stick. It wasn't Aaron's stick. It was God. But God let those men come to the end of self. And Moses went back and he did what God told him to do. He went into Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told him, I don't know your God and your people are lazy. And it got worse. And at the end of chapter 5 in Exodus, Moses goes to God complaining and said, God, I did exactly what you told me to do and you haven't done anything, I can't do this. And then the first verses of chapter 6 of Exodus, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, now you're going to see something. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I am the Lord. And Moses had to learn, like we all have to learn, that it's not about what I can or cannot do. It's just an excuse. A little boy could not feed a multitude. And yet, what could he do? He did what he could. He gave Jesus his lunch. And the Lord did the rest. Here we have in 2 Kings chapter 5 a story, and I'm going to quickly go through it, but I want you just to focus on a little girl in this story. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a man, a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife, and she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. 
And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. Now, I'm going to stop here, have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to summarize the story, but I want to park on what happened with this little girl and what God did with that. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be here tonight with this church. Thank you for the music. Thank you for the praises to your name. We thank you, Father, for a love of a Savior that will not let us go. Father, we thank you that when we were not seeking for you, no man seeketh after God. People are seeking and looking for a lot of things today, looking for happiness, looking for meaning in life, looking for love, looking for uh, success, looking for purpose, but they're not looking for God. And they have to come face to face with the fact that before a holy creator God, they have nothing to offer for their soul and they need a savior. And Father, thank you that, I pray that everyone in this room tonight has had that experience where they know there came a time, there came a place when they realized how much they needed a savior and that Jesus died for their sins. But maybe there's someone out here tonight that has never heard this before. Maybe they've heard it, but they've not responded to the gift. A gift is no good if you don't reach out and take it. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that has not received that gift of eternal life, that this would be the night that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, help us to see in Naaman the pride of a sinner and the willful stubbornness that wants to go its own way and how they have to come to the end of self and surrender to you and come your way. And, uh, but how a little girl had the faith and she did what she could and how you used it and blessed it. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This man was a proud man. Of course, leprosy was a picture of sin. And you see a man who was very successful. He was wealthy. He was prominent. He was very noted. And, uh, and even by him, the Lord had done things. He didn't even know the Lord, but God had used that man. And yet, he was a leper. And as leprosy had no cure, uh, he was on a slow path to a, a very uh, unpleasant existence and an early death. But there was a little girl that had become a slave, and she was there, and she heard, she knew of her master's plight. And that little girl, think of all the things she could not do. She couldn't heal his leprosy. She couldn't make him believe that if he went to Israel, it would do any good. She couldn't pay for the trip. What could she do? She could believe, first of all, in her God, that her God had the power, and that her God was a merciful God, and that her God could heal this man of his leprosy. She had to believe in her God, and then she had to say something. She could have just kept that to herself, but she did what she could. And so she went to her mistress, the man's name is wife, and tells her, there is a prophet in Israel that God is using mightily. He's done miracles. My master's leprosy is not too hard for God. He's the God of the impossible, just like the choir sang. And, and she had a heart of faith. And what could she do? She could tell this lady what she believed. And God did the rest. And so Naaman, you know the story, Naaman goes with a letter from the king. He goes over to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel thinks that the, the king of Syria is picking a fight and it's going to be a war, and he's ripping his clothes because he's all stressed out, and he's all stressed out because he doesn't know the Lord. And people are stressed out today because they don't know the Lord, or they're not walking with the Lord, and they're trying to do everything in their own strength. And maybe you're here tonight, and your life is full of stress, and full of turmoil, and full of confusion. Maybe you just need to quit trying to go your own way, 
and let this book and let this God, your creator that knows you way better than you know yourself, start to direct your steps. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. We're going to see in a moment how Naaman was doing that. Leaning on his own understanding. But the Bible says, no, in all thy ways, right, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. But Naaman goes, and so he's told, well, there's this prophet. And so the prophet says, send him. And so he comes to the prophet's house, and the prophet doesn't even come out and greet him. He sends his servant outside. How rude. Doesn't he know who I am? And Naaman throws a fit. It says he goes away in a rage. Why is he so angry? Because he believes he's entitled to some respect and to recognition. We have a whole culture today in America where people are being told a lie that I'm something really special and everybody should know that and treat me with this certain level of specialness. And if people don't treat me just a certain way and call me just the certain title I require, then I have a right to be angry. And that was Naaman. It's called pride. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. First one, a proud look. Pride is probably the number one reason why people do not receive the gift of eternal life and go to hell. Just too proud to accept a gift. We, if, if being nice got you to heaven, Japan would be full of Japanese people. They have been so nice to us over the years. So polite. So courteous. We get spoiled in Japan. Then we come back to America and get culture shock. Wow. Okay. Customer service and things over there is really nice. They're very kind, but they're proud. They don't want to admit they need a savior. And uh, that's what they have to come to. Naaman got mad, and he goes off in a huff. And he said, I thought that's the problem. He's leaning on his own understanding. The way I see it, it looks to me like we do that all the time, don't we? And God says, don't do that. And God is there, and God has a non-negotiable gospel. Now, this is a picture of the gospel. And God gives him the terms of how he will be cleansed. Go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times. And he's asking the question, why? And the answer is, because God said so. <laughs> That's why. Because God's the boss. God is the ruler. He's the creator. And he's not negotiating terms with you about this. So Naaman goes off in a huff and a puff, and God waits. Cain went off in a rage when God said, I won't receive that sacrifice that way, Cain. And Cain got angry, and God told him what he needed to do to fix it, and he didn't do it. He tells Naaman what he needs to do to fix it. Jonah... God says, Jonah, rise up and go to that city, Nineveh, and preach against it. I don't want to go there. And God waits, and God arranges some things. And the second time the word of the Lord comes to him, after that difficult experience with the whale, and it says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah and said unto him, guess what? Same thing. He didn't say, Jonah, you don't want to, I guess you don't want to go to Nineveh. Where would you like to minister? He doesn't give him that. No, the Lord says, this is what I want. And Jonah had to come to the end of self and turn around. And so Naaman has to come to the end of himself. He has to get so sick and tired of his leprosy and of being in this condition, I'm sick of the way I am living. I am ready to submit. I am ready to surrender. I am ready to let God be God. And when he did that, and he did what God said, he went down into that river 
And he dipped himself not once, not twice, not five times, not six times, seven times. And it wasn't until the seventh time. And he came out, and God kept his word, God kept his promise, and he was clean. And God will do that for you tonight if you'll come to him. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Japanese have a way of thinking, that, that iconic symbol, Mount Fuji, over there. Beautiful mountain, many paths to the top of Mount Fuji, one peak at the top, many paths, and that's kind of like religion. Just pick which path you want to take, which religion, which persuasion you want to take. You pick out the one you like, but we all end up at the same place at the top. That's a lie. Jesus Christ said, no, there's only one way. I am the way. And you can fight it, you can resist it, you can be mad about it, but it doesn't change. And, but if you will come to that place where you will agree with God, you can be saved. And Naaman came to that place. But all of it happened because a little girl did what she could. He didn't know about the prophet in Israel. He didn't believe in the God of Israel, but a little girl did. And she could tell her master's wife about him. I'm going to close tonight with a quick story, and I'm going to ask the brother to turn on the, uh, the uh, slides there for me. Just a few slides. This is a true story from World War II. There was a man named, <coughs> excuse me, there was a man named Chiyune Sugihara, and uh, I just got there. He did what he could. If you could show the next picture there, brother. Thank you. This was in 1920. He was a 20-year-old. He was born on January 1st of 1900. And uh, at 20 years of age, his dad wanted him to be a doctor, but he didn't want to be a doctor. But he was very gifted with languages. And he ended up becoming a diplomat for Japan in China uh, at the beginning of World War II. Now, for America, World War II began with Pearl Harbor. But Japan was already invading China. And Hitler, of course, was already invading Europe. And uh, he saw what was happening with Japanese soldiers and what was being done to Chinese people, and he got disgusted, and he went back to Japan. He said, I resigned my post. But later, go ahead, brother, if you would, uh, he was assigned as a consul, as a vice consul, like an ambassador, to the little country of Lithuania. And if you look on a world map, Russia is there, and then to the west of Russia is this little country called Lithuania, and to the west of that is a country called Poland, and farther from Poland is Germany. And Mr. Sugihara was there. Go ahead, brother, please. And uh, he's there with his family. He had his wife and two little boys, and a, another lady was a helper. And he was the ambassador for Japan in a city, at a, like an embassy for Japan in Lithuania. And one morning, go ahead, please, uh, he looked outside, and this is an actual picture. He saw these people standing out there. They were Jewish refugees. They were trying to escape the Holocaust. Hitler was rounding up people and sending them to the death camps. And these people had fled from Poland into Lithuania. Why did they come to the Japanese consulate? Because they had been told by Russia that if you have an exit visa that will let you go out of Russia to another country, we will let you cross Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad and you can go out and escape. But they had to have some country that would let them go out of Russia and come into their country. So they came to the Japanese consulate and said, would your country please grant us a temporary exit visa that would then let us cross Russia and go into Japan temporarily on our way to a final destination. Three times Mr. Sugihara appealed to his government in Tokyo, and three times he was told flatly, no, do not issue visas. And this man had a plight, go ahead please, 
and he talked with his wife. I don't know if he was a saved man. I believe he was a God-fearing man, but he was in a very difficult position. If I, if I obey orders, which Japanese traditionally always do, if I obey orders and do what I'm told, I'm sending these people back to a certain death. I've got to do something. I've got to do what I can do. I don't know what the ramifications will be. I don't know what the final consequences will be, but I have to do what I can do. And so this man with his wife made a decision that regardless of the outcome for us personally, I'm going to do what I can to save people. And for the next several months, he wrote over 2,000 visas by hand against orders, stamping them with the seal of Japan, knowing that he's not supposed to do that. But when these people received these visas and they took them and crossed Russia, when they got to Japan, the Japanese officials at immigration don't know that they're not supposed to have these. They let them in. And he began to do this for the next months, and his wife would help him. He was working 16, 18 hours a day writing these visas, and people kept coming and kept coming. And he said, sir, all right, your grandfather and your wife, uh, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, who all is with you? And he, a man would point out 12, 15 people. He said, all right, everybody, you can travel on grandpa's visa. And he multiplied his efforts, and he did what he could. There came a day... And if you would, go ahead, brother, and advance that. This is what those passports looked like with the stamp of Japan on it. And it says they have permission to enter Japan. And then the next slide shows, you can't read them, it's just, it's just name after name after name of people he directly wrote visas for. And there came a day when Hitler continued to advance into Poland and Lithuania was going to fall next. And the Lithuanian government came to this man and said, you cannot stay here with your family. We cannot guarantee your safety. Lithuania is going to fall. You have to go. We're shutting down the consulate. So he went back to the hotel with his family, and they're packing, and Jewish people are following them to the hotel, and he's writing visas as they pack. They're going to the train station. He's writing visas as they get on the platform with their tickets. And as he got on that train and had to pull away, he handed the last visa that he could make out to someone and threw the visa-making materials out to those people. And he said, I'm sorry, I can do no more. But he did what he could. Now, the next slide shows his son at age 72. This is just a few years ago. Mr. Sugihara went back to Japan. Went into obscurity. He lost all position in government. Uh, he received no recognition in Japan early on for what he had done. But the newly reborn nation of Israel in 1948 did want to recognize what he did. And uh, his wife, because he was in too ill of health, she went back to Japan and he was honored for what he had done. This is his 72-year-old son just a few years ago that went back to Israel and they had another ceremony to recognize and honor his father for what he had done. And this next slide shows a quote from his son. said, his father never imagined that so many beneficiaries of the documents that he issued would manage to survive. Now, Nobuki the son estimated there were several hundred thousand descendants of those who were able to escape to safety. And I close tonight with just a short four-minute video of one lady who I think you'll understand why what this man did is so meaningful to her, and then I'll draw it to a close. So if you could play that now, please. That's a secular story in history, but I think you understand why I showed it. This lady in tears talked about what her life had become and her children and grandchildren because of what one man did, doing what he could. But do you realize that man never knew this woman? 
he would not remember a three-year-old little girl, would not know about her getting married to her husband, would not know about her twin sons that became doctors, would not know about her grandchildren, would not know about her teaching school for 25 years. And she said something. She said, I would not be alive today if it were not for Mr. Sugihara. You turn that into a spiritual application, I would not be on my way to heaven today if it were not for a little gray-haired junior church teacher named Mrs. Jones and an evangelist and a dad and mom that took me to church. If you're here today and you know that you're on your way to heaven because there was a time and a place that you received Christ, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you really need to talk to somebody here tonight because you should understand what I'm talking about. But if you know the Lord as your Savior, you know Almost never have I heard a story where somebody all by themselves just got tired of the way they were living and just decided on their own with no help from any other human being just to pick up a Bible and start reading it and get saved and understand. And the Holy Spirit of God can do it, but it almost never happens that way. If you're here tonight as a child of God, the day that Jesus saved you, why did he not just whisk you off to heaven? Why are we still here? Because God used somebody some bodies, very likely, to bring you to your understanding. And it wasn't the first time, it wasn't the second time, it was many, many, many times that someone faithfully cared enough about you to tell you, to give you that track, to invite you to church. Maybe you got mad, whatever may have happened, but you did what you could. You couldn't convince them to believe in Christ, but you could invite them to a service. You couldn't do this, but you could tell them your story of how the Lord had saved you. You can do something. There's something that God has for you. Otherwise, he would have taken you to heaven. He has a work for us to do. And so as we close, I'm just going to turn it back over to Pastor Ingram. But as we close, maybe just think back as, as we bow our heads and close our eyes. Think back to the day that you got saved. And then think back beyond that to the people God used in your life to bring you to Christ. The other night we were in a church and I shared this. And I'm not saying this tonight to do this, but the pastor spontaneously just told people, hey, let's just start talking and sharing testimonies about how God saved you, someone that God used in your life. And it just started popping like popcorn, and it was wonderful. But I can think back in my own life to that person, but then somebody had to have won that person. And it keeps going back, and it keeps going back. You know what it goes back to? It goes back to a God that created this universe, and before the foundation of the world... God was going to create you and create me, not as robots, not as machines, but as created in his image with a free will that could choose to accept or reject him. And knowing that we would reject him and go our own way, he, at the, before the world ever began, made a way for you and me to be saved. Amen. It goes back to the love of God. But God shows his love to you and to me through people. And God wants to do that with you and me for others.